This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 230, entitled, Jesus' Sonship Verified at His Resurrection. In our previous three episodes, we began exploring different ways that the New Testament authors understood and portrayed Jesus as the Son of God. We demonstrated that at least three distinguishable strategies were employed by the biblical authors. First, Jesus is the Son of God in light of his begetting by the Father at his birth. Second, Jesus is announced as the royal Son of God at his baptism by John, a baptism which served as Jesus' public coronation and anointing ceremony for the role as Israel's Messiah. And third, Jesus is confirmed as the Son of God at his resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand. In this week's episode, we will look deeper into this third way of highlighting Jesus' sonship. We will explore how two prominent New Testament authors, Luke and the Apostle Paul, give special attention to the sonship of Jesus at his resurrection. So here are some of the questions that I wish to explore in this week's episode. How are Luke and the Apostle Paul able to stress the sonship of Jesus at his resurrection, while at the same time emphasizing Jesus is the Son of God according to his birth? Does Paul hold to an adoptionistic understanding of Jesus as the Son of God? And to what level of elevation has the resurrection exalted the Son of God? And how does Paul portray Jesus in light of this promotion in status? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the sonship of Jesus highlighted at his resurrection in the book of Acts. So we'll be reading out of Acts chapter 13, and this is Luke telling us this story, but within this story, it is actually Paul who is giving this particular speech. So I'll start in Acts chapter 13, verse 26 where Paul says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written according to him, they took him down from the cross 
and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Acts 13, verses 26 through 33. Now we read this passage from Acts chapter 13 a few episodes back when we were demonstrating that Luke, the evangelist, is able to describe Jesus' sonship in three different ways. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time pulling out all of the data in this particular passage. You can refer to episode 227 for that particular data. But what's interesting here is that the passage is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That is pretty clear. And in Acts 13.33, Luke tells us by recording the speech of Paul that God fulfilled this promise to the children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. This raising up seems to, on the surface, be the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection. Jesus was dead, he was in the grave, and God raised Jesus back up to life. And in the passage, it says that this was as it was written in the second psalm. And then Psalm 2, verse 7 is cited. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, it's extremely important to understand that this passage from Psalm 2-7 is about the coronation and the installation of the king for God's royal purposes. So I'll read the section there just to get the sense of the context. In Psalm 2, verse 6, the previous verse, it says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7. And the important part of this that we cannot miss is the fact that the king, Yahweh's king, has been installed. He has been installed for his messianic purpose because earlier in Psalm 2, verse 2, he is called the anointed one. He is called the Christ, the Messiah. And this installation is described in the sense to where God becomes the father of this king. This king thereby becomes the son. Son of God is therefore, at least in this passage, a title to refer to the king that has been installed for his royal purpose. So when it says, today I have begotten you, this is not bringing the king into existence. Now, clearly, the king has been alive for many years. In fact, he was just recently installed upon Zion. This beginning is the sense of God becoming the father of this particular king, meaning the king bears this title son, and this son is the son of God. Son of God, thereby, is the title for the king. 
the king that has been recently installed for his royal purposes. And so what we see here is that there is a theology of Luke portraying Jesus as the Son of God because he has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. Clearly, he has been raised and exalted to heaven to sit at God's right hand. And thereby, his sonship that proves that he is the anointed king, he is the Christ, he is Israel's Messiah, that sonship has now been proven. It's been highlighted. It has been verified. And so, that is how he can cite Psalm 2-7 in this particular way. Now, we need to remember that Luke was able to portray Jesus as Son of God in three different categories. And this passage in Acts 13-33 is the third of those three categories. But just to remind us that the first time that Luke makes a statement about Jesus' sonship, it is in reference to Jesus' birth. And that sonship is a literal sonship. It is the fact that Jesus is son in the natural way that the word son means. It is a male child that has been born to a father figure. But what we learn is that father is God. God has brought Jesus into existence and Jesus was born. He was begotten. And we see that because of the miracle birth, Jesus will be called the son of God in Luke 1.35. Two chapters later, Luke describes the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and it's at this baptism to where Jesus is announced by the voice from heaven, you are my son, which echoes Psalm 2, verse 7, and thereby we have the announcement there that Jesus is the royal Messiah. His baptism is serving as the anointing ceremony, his coronation, and there is the announcement here that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the title for the Messiah. And then we've just seen that Jesus' sonship title is confirmed at his resurrection, and we see that in Acts 13, verse 33. So since Luke the Evangelist wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke the Evangelist is able to describe Jesus as Son of God in three different ways, at his birth, at his baptism, and at his resurrection. And Luke, as an inspired writer, does not see any conflict or contradiction with these three different ways of describing Jesus' sonship. Jesus is Son of God because of his birth. He is announced publicly to the world that he is Son of God at his anointing ceremony, at his baptism, and his messianic status, which probably came into doubt at his death in the eyes of many, if not most, was actually verified as true and confirmed at his resurrection. So let's look at another author that has different ways of describing Jesus as Son of God, but also wants to comment on the resurrection of Jesus as a new way to verify his sonship. And there we will look at the Apostle Paul. This moves us to our second point, Paul's comment on Jesus' resurrection in the book of Romans. So at the beginning of Romans, in the first four verses, Paul describes Jesus as the Son of God. But what's interesting, as we're going to see, is that within 
this passage, Paul is able to describe Jesus as Son of God in two different ways. And he also does it in the very same sentence. So let's read this passage. Romans chapter 1, I will start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. So Paul is able to do some very interesting things in this passage. In Romans 1, 3, he talks about his son. Now the subject of the passage has been God, the gospel of God which God promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. But then it refers to the Son, concerning His Son. Whose Son? Well, that's God's Son, meaning that this Son is the Son of God. And this Son of God is described as one who has been born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And the beginning language is actually used there in the Greek, Jesus was begotten, as a descendant of David, he is from the seed of David, and yet he is God's son. So Paul believes that Jesus is son of God because of his birth. And then Paul goes on in verse 4, and he says that Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul says that this is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the designation of Jesus Christ as our Lord with that particular title is going to be very important a little bit later in our study. What we can see here is that Paul is able to describe Jesus as Son of God in two different and distinct ways, all within the same sentence. He's able to say that Jesus is the Son of God from birth, Romans 1 verse 3, and he's able to say that she is a son of God by resurrection in Romans 1 4. Now, how do we distinguish these two? Well, Paul seems to put a little extra emphasis on that second designation of son of God. It says that Jesus was declared the son of God with power at the resurrection of the dead. So he was already the Son of God, according to verse 3, but he was openly declared to be the Son of God powerfully. It was the Son of God with power. So we have this extra description there to describe the fact that this is a declaration of something that was already true. It's an announcement, and it's accompanied with power. There's something different about the Son of God that came out of the grave. He's now the powerful Son of God, because according to Paul's Christological passage in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul is able to say that God raised him from the dead, God has highly exalted him, and God has given Jesus a name that is above every name, in order that people will bend the knee to Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. And here we see that Jesus is the Son of God with power, 
because of the resurrection of the dead, and he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Paul is able to say Jesus is Son of God from his birth and Son of God with power by the resurrection. So, just like Luke, Paul is able to point out that Jesus is confirmed and verified of his messianic title, the Son of God, at his resurrection. So, this is not adoptionism. Adoptionism is the doctrine that started to appear in the centuries after the first century, and it indicated that Jesus' title as Son of God indicated that he was adopted by God at some particular point of his life, usually at his baptism, but that doctrine assumes that Jesus is just an ordinary person, he's just an ordinary, insignificant guy, and then God decides to pick him to be the Messiah, and he is adopted and given the title Son of God, and prior to that, Jesus was not the Son of God. He was just an ordinary child of God. But Paul here is not demonstrating an adoptionistic theology. He is very clear that Jesus is Son of God because of his birth, and that he is declared the powerful Son of God because of his resurrection. Now this powerful promotion and exaltation seems to be influenced by Psalm 110, verse 1. And I think this is really important because I think it makes sense of how Paul the Apostle is able to describe Jesus with lordship language, with the title Lord, throughout his letters. And so in Psalm 110, 1, we have Yahweh saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. And so in this passage, we have God, the Lord, who is Yahweh, and he tells somebody else. This other person is called my Lord. This other person has a title, and this title indicates an exalted status, and of course, this person is exalted. This person is commanded by Yahweh to sit at my right hand. So it indicates that this person is exalted to heaven, exalted to God's right hand. But this second Lord is a title. Lord here is not a reference to someone's name. Unlike the first Lord, which is the proper name of God, it is Yahweh. But the second one is a title because it has the suffix on it, the pronominal suffix, my Lord. It is a Lord that belongs to a particular person. And so what we could see with Paul describing Jesus, Jesus Christ is our Lord in Romans 1.4. Now this title Lord cannot mean a reference to Yahweh, because Yahweh is a proper name. And you can't say, my Yahweh, or our Yahweh. That's not a phrase in Hebrew, and it actually just doesn't work. It doesn't work grammatically, it doesn't work logically, it doesn't work linguistically. So the phrase, our Lord, would never be understood as a reference to Yahweh's name. It is a reference to a title. So Paul seems to believe that Jesus is the one 
who fulfills Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus is that second Lord who has been summoned to God's right hand. He's been exalted to heaven powerfully, and that is part of the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And we can see how this way of describing Jesus' sonship, where Jesus verified at his resurrection, in which Paul is able to say that he is a son of God with power, we can see throughout the letters of Paul how this exaltation to lordship is described. And it seems to infuse Paul's theology and Christology all over the place. And so I wanted to look at that a little bit more closely in our third point. The third point of the day is the exalted status as Lord within Pauline theology. Now I'm going to stick to the book of Romans since we've already started looking at it. We notice that the first reference to Jesus as Lord is in Romans 1.4, where Jesus is our Lord. And again, the point of this is to highlight how it is that Paul understands the title of Jesus as Son of God with power in his resurrection. And we can see that Jesus was exalted, he was verified as the Son of God, and this exaltation is a promotion to the status as Lord in light of Psalm 110 verse 1 where there is a Lord that is summoned to God's right hand. This Lord is clearly distinguished from God. This Lord is not to be identified as God. This is the person that has been exalted to God's right hand. So a few verses later in Romans, we have the greeting in verse 7, where it says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 1.7. So there we have greetings, not just from God, who is described as our Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this exalted status as Lord allows Jesus to participate in the sending of greetings. That's very important. God is able to do it, and now we have the exalted Lord Jesus that participates in the sending of greetings to the Roman believers. In chapter 4, towards the end of Paul's argument, Paul says that it's not only for his sake only that it was written, that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's Romans 4, verses 23 through 24. So Paul expects his readers to believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That person in whom they are supposed to believe clearly is God. God is the one who raised Jesus. And this Jesus, notice here in the description of him being raised from the dead, he is Jesus our Lord. He bears this title and is associated to his resurrection. A few verses later in Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul is going to begin his arguments in Romans 
by describing Jesus as Lord, and he's going to end and kind of wrap up his arguments with another reference of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's typically through Jesus Christ our Lord, in Jesus our Lord, this sort of title of Jesus as this now exalted royal Messiah who has attained the status of Lord in light of Psalm 1 is something that Paul is going to repeatedly use as a way to structure his argument. And so at the end of the argument of the passage in Romans 5, 1 through 11, we can see Paul saying not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That's Romans 5, verse 11. So again, we celebrate or we exult in God, but we do it through Jesus Christ. We do it through King Jesus, but it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord that we all now have. We all now have confessed to that lordship and our submission to that lordship and obedience to him. And he is our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the next section in Romans, which is 5, 12 through 21, Paul is able to wrap it up and say that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Romans 5, 21. So again, at the end of the argument, everything is in Jesus Christ or it's through Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is our Lord. We can continue on. At the end of the next major argument in chapter 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. So it is the gift of God, but this is in King Jesus our Lord. Jesus there has the title. It is our Lord. At the end of the next argument in chapter 7, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 7, 25. And at the end of the next chapter in Romans 8, starting in verse 38, Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38-39. So again, Jesus distinguished from God. We have God's love, and God's love is in Christ Jesus, who is described as our Lord. We can see the confession to the Lordship of Jesus that believers are supposed to have, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can see there almost a correlation to the lordship of Jesus that he has and the fact that God is the one that raised him from the dead. Jesus is the Son of God with power because of the resurrection of dead, and he is Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a figure, a messianic figure, to which the believers look to and place their faith in. He is someone in whom they are supposed to participate in his redemptive and salvific activity. So in Romans 13 verse 14, readers are commanded to put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So they are to put on Jesus, but specifically it's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as the exalted Lord, Jesus is someone who now has a sphere of influence in which believers can participate in this new life, this new resurrection life. So by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are identifying with this new life, this resurrection life, the life of the age to come, and they are no longer making provision for the flesh. That would be associated with Adam. At the end of the next major section in Romans chapter 14, Paul says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Romans 14, verse 9. And again, we can see that the Lord that Jesus is, is not a proper name. It's not Lord as in Yahweh. No, that's the name of God. That's the name of the Father. This Lord is a title because he is the Lord of the dead and he is the Lord of the living. This clearly is a title that he has. And Jesus is able to be the Lord of the living and the dead because he has been raised from the dead. And he's been raised and exalted and promoted to this position as Lord because he is the Son of God with power because of the resurrection of the dead. And the last reference we'll look at, and we're not even being exhaustive here. There are still more in the book of Romans. But in Romans 15, verse 6, Paul says, So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15, verse 6. So here we see that Jesus is our Lord, but we are going to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to be on the same page with this. He wants them to be in accord and with a single voice to give glory to God. But this is the God of Jesus. It is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus. And if he is the Father of Jesus, then Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. The Son of God, who has been raised from the dead with power to attain to the status as Lord. And so he is our Lord Jesus Christ. So this passage is able to demonstrate the Lordship of Jesus, the Sonship of Jesus, and the fact that Jesus has a God and that God is described as the Father. So Jesus is not to be identified as God. Jesus has a God. And that God, of course, is our God. And that God is the Father alone because the Apostle Paul is a good Jewish monotheist, a good Unitarian, who believes that God is only one person, the Father alone. And Jesus is highly exalted, but he's only exalted to God's right hand and exalted to the status as Lord. He is not exalted to the status as God. So there you have it. Paul is able to describe the sonship of Jesus and verify that sonship because of his resurrection. And it's pretty clear that that particular theology and Christology has infused Paul's writings in many important places, especially within the book of Romans. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at a brand new topic, looking at how the New Testament authors describe the doctrine of atonement by pointing 
to the fact that a human being was sufficient to die for the sins of the world. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on iTunes or YouTube, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.